Amen. Thank you, Tony. So our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're following along in the Bible and want to get there, we are, we are just about to the end of this series we've been doing through the Advent season and into the new year, where we've been looking at all the places in the Old Testament and New Testament where, where, where um, the scriptures try to describe the, the turning upside down of the world by the coming of the Most High to become a humble servant. And what happens is, is that as he comes, God comes to earth, the first become last and the last first. Those that are humble get exalted and those that exalt themselves get humbled. And there's this overturning of all of these things. And so you'll, you'll notice again in this text the same, the same kind of gospel maxim. And so that's why we chose it. But First Peter 5, beginning in verse 5, we're going to read through verse 11. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, it's in your worship folder for you if you're at home and you're, and you're watching. It should be on your screen. Let's read uh, together from God's word. Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There it is. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May we believe all that God's word teaches. Obey all that it reveals, trust in all that it promises, and receive all that it reveals to us. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Here's a question for you to ponder. It's something I've been thinking about all week. What if God can bring about good things without us? What if God can bring about good things completely without us? I read that question in something I was reading this week not been able to shake it. But I've been thinking about it. It may be a brand new thought for you. As you, as you hear me say that, do you believe that? Do you, I mean, do you really believe it? And if you do, what difference would it make in your life? That's what I want to talk about together this morning a little bit. But I'd like to begin where we ended last week with the same gospel maxim that's here in this text that was in the text in James that we looked at last Sunday in verse 6 where you see he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we said, and I'll reiterate, there, is, there, there are no wages. There, in, in reality, now, despite what is cultural dogma, there is no good for being good and there is no bad for being bad. There is only grace. And grace is what moves life forward, not human effort. And grace is only given to those who know they can't do life on their own and have stopped trying. So there are proud people. In one camp, proud people, people doing life in their own strength, living their own truth, right? Trusting in their own resources. That's the way they're going about life. And that way of life, we're told both here and in the passage last Sunday, that way of life meets with divine resistance. God opposes it. He is at war with it because human self-sufficiency and pride and boasting is never the solution. It is almost always the problem. Then there are humble people. People who feel their smallness, even if they have a really big job, 
They boast in God, not in themselves. God is all for them, and they are nothing. They go through life asking for help, not achieving, not accomplishing things in their own strength. The text says those are the ones, they, they are the ones that get grace, and grace is what matters. Grace is what counts. Grace is what really pushes things forward, and that's why it's so important. Now, Hannah Anderson has a great illustration of this, at least it was for me. It's kind of it's a small thing, but in a book that she wrote called Humble Roots, she, she, described, um, she described her family planting some seeds from a famous local gardener. So they were with great care trying to produce this, this I think it was a tomato plant or something, but, uh, or it was beans, sorry, beans. And they carefully cultivated a piece of ground in the backyard. They tenderly put the seeds in the ground and watered and fertilized them and fussed over them while they, while they were there. They built a trellis for the beans to climb. They did all, of the, all the things they could and the plants sprouted and they were hopeful with expectation, but then nothing. Just, just enough, they got just enough beans out of that beautifully cultivated garden for a single meal. But at the same time, they were expanding um, their patio. And as they had done that work, they saved a small pile of dirt to fill stuff back in once the work was over. And weeks later, they realized that there was a hole in the bag that the bean, bean seeds were in. And at some point, their young son had taken the beans and played with them on the dirt pile, digging around. They realized this because pretty soon green sprouts began to spring up from that castaway dirt pile. And they grew and they grew. And those cast off, forgotten, unattended seeds produced enough beans for the whole summer. Now what's the lesson? We can plan. These are her words. We can plan, we can plant, we can build a trellis, we can do all the right things, but we are not guaranteed a harvest simply because we worked hard and planned well. Pride tells us that all we have to do is organize well enough, plan effectively enough, work hard enough, and we can achieve our dreams. Humility teaches us that it was never up to us in the first place. Follow the logic of the text. If God opposes the proud... If he gives grace, if he works for the humble, then it just makes sense what we should do, doesn't it? We should humble ourselves. We should get ourselves to the humble place, get ourselves where grace is, and keep ourselves there. Because that is the way to life with God. Now, our last pass to some of these things, I want you to see a number of things from this text as we talk about what it means, what it looks like for us to humble ourselves, to live in light of God and other people, in profound humility, because you'll see here there's a number of things. There's first, we're shown the X and the Y axis of humility. I'll explain that in a minute. But then secondly, we're shown there's a certain theater that, we, that humility exists in. So the X and Y axis in the theater, and then there's a work that attends to humility, and then just as the same as last week, where do you get the strength to really, to really live this way? And it's in the phrase, and we're going to come back to it, but I just want you to anticipate it where it says in this text, God cares for you. And so let's look at each of those as we go through this, these few verses together. First, look at the coordinates for humility. You remember what a coordinate is in, in math class? You might remember, I'm, I think I'm going, th- I'm going through Algebra 2 for the fourth time, fourth and final time, praise, well actually if you count me, the fifth and final time I guess, me, once for me, four, four kids. We're almost done with Algebra 2 for the rest of my life. I'm not doing it with my grandkids. They, my kids can figure that out. But 
if you remember algebra two or even before that, a, a coordinate is a pair of numbers, one from the x-axis and one from the y-axis. And so you gotta chart that out and plot it. Well, in Christianity, we live along both the vertical and the horizontal axis at the same time. There are two great commands. To love God first, first above all things, and then secondly to love others. And according to Jesus, he says they're alike, they're of the same, they're similar. There's a correspondence between those two. So if you love God, you will love others. If your relationships in your life are struggling, it's probably because there's a problem in your relationship with God. Humility, therefore, has both a vertical and a horizontal component. And you see both in the text. Let's look at the horizontal first. He says, clothe yourself. Well, let's, 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 the horizontal first in verse five. Let's just see there. Clothe yourself with all humility towards one another. And then the vertical in verse six, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So you see, both are listed, both flow. They're on either side of that quote that I mentioned there just a minute ago in verse six. That's quoting from Proverbs chapter three, verses 34 and, and beyond. And so each of them flow out of that, that phrase there in verse six. Now let's take the vertical first. Okay, we're gonna start with the vertical. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's verse six. Now remember our definition of humility, that it is the displacement of the self in the enthronement of God. The displacement of the self and the enthronement of God. God is all, I am nothing. It's a mindset. You consciously put yourself under God. Pride, pride is, is the part of us that desires to be over God. Ancient people approached God or the gods the way an accused person approached a judge. But today it's reversed. This was C.S. Lewis who said this. He said, we imagine ourselves as the judge. God is the one on the witness stand. He's not the judge of us. We are the judge of him. And that is the way we live our lives most often. The commands of God are subject to our approval. Truth is determined by our feelings, not the other way around. We put ourselves over God. But Peter says, that's, that's a terrible way to live. You know, that's going to get you into all kinds of trouble. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Put yourself under him, under his authority, under his wisdom, under his providence and power. So that if my feelings aren't in line with what God commands, then the problem is my feelings. I have to come under his authority. See, see how this works? If I'm upset about a particular situation, that doesn't mean that God, that doesn't make God wrong for allowing the whole, the thing to happen or for being too slow. It just means I'm too small to understand at this moment the whole picture. I have to come under his wisdom. If I have a problem that's too big for me to solve with my own strength or smarts or resources, God has not failed. We're just in the middle of the story. I have to come under his mighty hand, which means waiting and praying and watching and hoping and enduring. See, humbling yourself is enduring in the belief that God is all and I am nothing. And then bringing your feelings and your behavior in line with that belief. That's what that phrase means. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And that leads, that leads to the horizontal dynamic and aspects in your life. So he says, verse 5, clothe yourselves. See that? With all humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Humility is like clothing, and I find that to be a super helpful image. <laughs> I, uh, I went to a wedding recently that was black tie. Actually, it was black tie invited 
what the heck does that mean? Uh, and I don't own a tux. And I realized in the weeks leading up to the date that the pants of my black suit were missing. I couldn't find them anywhere. And this was right around Christmas time. So it was just a week or so away. I had nothing to wear. I braved the crowded roads of Central Florida at Christmas time. Even went to the malls. God help me. Going everywhere looking for appropriate clothing. I spent way too much time, way too much time on this. And the best part was we got to the wedding, and I'm not kidding you, 90% of the people there were not dressed in black tie. And I was so mad. <clears throat> it was in, it was in um, Tennessee, and in fact, what happened, we went shopping before the wedding. The day of the wedding, I found a black suit in a Dillard's in Tennessee and bought it and wore it. And I was about the only person there in a black suit. There's a dress code for most things, right? Schools have them. Official uh, offices typically have some kind of expectation of what, your, what, the, what the employees are supposed to wear. Most social settings, if you, you, know, you have to think about where you're going and what, what you should wear and what's appropriate. And sometimes you don't have what you need, and so you go to the store and get something that fits. In your closet, there are formal clothes and casual clothes and warm clothes for that one day, like today in Florida, where you can pull out those boots and stockings and wear them. The dress code for Christian community, the dress code for church, is humility. And it says, just like you do with other things, decide ahead of time that you're going to wear humility. I mean, the mind of Christ is a mindset. Peter's saying, be proactive, show up, already dressed for humility. Put others first, put yourself last, because that's the way of Jesus. Andrew Murray, he wrote, he said, humility towards men will be, will be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. The two are connected. And so, as we think about humility moving forward, think about it along both the, the horizontal and vertical, the X and the Y axis. But secondly, there's not only the coordinates, but you see the mindset, or excuse me, you see the theater for humility, and that's verses 8 and 9. Now, in military operations, the theater, I don't mean the theater like the Strass Center or Little Winter Haven Theater. In military operations, the theater refers to the particular area, the topography, where the battle's going to take place. And this text is a call to war, and if you're going to war, it's important to know the terrain and the conditions and all that that, that the battle's going to take place in. Now, the text is clear that we are in fact at war, and we should therefore assume a wartime mentality. Look at verse eight, he says, be sober-minded and watchful. Life is not all fun and games. There is a need to be serious, to be on the alert. I've seen too many people ruin their lives because they let their guards down. They relax for just one minute, and that's all it takes. We say this to our kids all the time. It's one minute, it's all it takes for you to absolutely ruin your life and for it to go off the rails. And I know that sounds intense. I'm intense, okay? Ask them, they'll tell you. I mean, they'll tell you, I'm an, inten I'm an intense person, but, but here's the thing, this is not a one-off thing. This is verse 13 of chapter 1, verse 7 of chapter 4, three times Peter says the same things here, and you can see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and 2 Timothy chapter 4 too. It says, I mean, this is, he says, we have an enemy, and he is on the prowl. He's hungry, he's roaring, he's a predator, and you are the prey, okay? This is how this works. He is the lion, and you are the gazelle. 
That's scary, right? John Calvin said these descriptions of the enemy like this, they only serve to make us more cautious and watchful. We have been forewarned, he says, that an enemy relentlessly threatens us. An enemy who is the very embodiment of rash boldness, of military prowess, of craft wiles, of untiring zeal and haste, of every conceivable weapon and of skill in the science of warfare. We must then bend our every effort to this goal that we should not let ourselves be overwhelmed by carelessness or faint-heartedness. Let me translate that for you. Here's what he says. You have an enemy, and he is more experienced than you are. He has superior weapons to you. He's smarter than you. You can't let him be more committed than you. You can't let him be more committed to your destruction than you are to his. In the National Geographic shows, which gazelle gets eaten? You've seen them. It's the one, it's the, the lion picks out the one who's not paying attention. The one who's let his guard down or the one who's allowed himself to get separated from the rest of the herd. And so part of what we learn here is that the person who adopts a casual approach to the spiritual life is a proud person. Which means they're in danger. Humility is sensitivity to reality, Gavin Orland writes. Pride is anchored in unreality. It underestimates the threat and it overestimates our response. But the temptation is always the same. The temptation of evil in our lives is to towards self-exaltation, to think, feel, and act independently of God. And, and the enemy does that by making you doubt God's heart. He says, you can't trust God. You've got to take care of yourselves. Don't listen to God. Just be true to you. Be true to yourselves. Find your own truth. Live according to your own truth. And the reason it's so easy to begin to doubt whether God is good is that life is full of suffering. It's full of all these hard things that we go through. And Peter has a lot to say about this in this letter because these people were in the depths of, of deep, deep pain and suffering and misfortune. And here's the thing. Faith looks at suffering through the lens of God's character, but unbelief reverses that. It looks at God's character through the lens of suffering. You can start with God and then bring what you know about God into the hard things in your life and let it shape your experience of those things, or you can start with the hard things. You can start with the suffering and then bring all of your feelings and experiences and let them shape how you think about God. But if you start with the hard stuff, if you start with the suffering, you end up in a crisis of faith. We even have a word for it. It's called theodicy. You, you enter into this crisis of faith of how, if God is good, how could he let this happen? But if he's all powerful, then, then is, he, is he good? Is he powerful? Is he both of those things? How's all of this work? See, the Bible... This is where so many people end up, but the Bible doesn't start with sin and the fall. It doesn't start with creation. It starts with God. But apart from the worldview of the Bible, if you're here and you're not a Christian, right? Apart from the worldview of the Bible, suffering doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. For the secular person, the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. And if that's the life goal, then suffering is nothing else but an interruption. It is meaningless. And therefore, the temptation is to use your talents and resources and everything in you to avoid suffering at all costs. And that's one way to define pride. Pride is this suffering, avoidant, independence, self-sufficiency. But Peter says this. He says, verse 9, resist the devil. And here's how. Look at what he says there. He says, you look at your suffering, you look at the hard parts of your life, not as something that's strange or out of place, but as just a normal part of life for all humanity. Here, I, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah. Something I hear all the time that is absolutely deadly. 
I know a lot of you are going through really, really hard things, but one of the things you have to remember as you go through them is whatever you're going through, there's nothing unique about your suffering. You don't have it so much worse than anybody else. That's what he says. We all, we all in varying degrees. And if you have it worse than somebody else, give it a minute and they'll probably have it worse than you. It's deadly to begin to think what I'm going through is so bad. And then you become full of self, of majestic self-pity. And it's just deadly. And so you look at it, you say, this is just what everybody else goes through, but it is a meaningful God-appointed part of the story. And then you humble yourself under it. You choose a self-emptying posture towards what God is doing, which almost always includes taking us through hard things. Now, how is that resisting the devil? Well, remember, the devil's sin is pride, and so he's always tempting us towards pride. But when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, when you recognize yourself suffering as God's activity and you submit to it and you wait for God to exalt you, you're posturing yourself. You're you're posturing yourself against the devil's temptations in your life. You're refusing that suffering avoidant self-exaltation and independence. There's a theater. We're at war. There's a lot at stake. Thirdly, well, then that led us right to the consideration of, of the theology or the, the theology of humility, the, 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 what, what's behind or the work of humility, however you want to put that. So how do you do that? How do you do what I just described? Well, you have to, you have to do theology. Follow, Peter, follow Peter, Peter's argument here. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is verse 6 and 7. So that at the proper time... He might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. And here it is, because he cares for you. Suffering is hard. I I, I mean, I want to acknowledge that. I don't mean to make light of anything anybody's going through in what I said just a minute ago. It's hard. But here's the thing. It's even harder when you don't know that God cares for you when you're in it. Peter says, you can humble yourself under what God is doing in your life, even if it means this road through the valley of the shadow of death even, because even on that road, you know he cares. You know he cares. Our kids have started going off to college. It's so weird, man. It's just so weird. After so many years, years, decades of having them be in your house and always knowing, at least the way we parented, always knowing where, I told you I was intense, knowing where they were, who they were with, what they were going to be doing, when they were coming, when they were going, when they were leaving, having a good idea of what was going on with them. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> My kids are in Tallahassee, so it's like they're, you know, 300 miles away. So I have all of their locations on my Find My function on my phone. And I, so, right? Because, I mean, and so it's funny. I find myself, and I have to be careful, but I find myself um, multiple times a day, like, going on there and just seeing where they are. And it's not, see, see it's not because I'm spying. It's really not. It's not. It's absolutely not. I thought about this. It's, re- it's like, I, I, this is the honest truth. I'm being serious with you. I, find, I just find myself thinking about them and just wishing I could know what's going on with them. I wonder where they are. Are they in class right now? What's, I can't keep, and I like seeing where they are, even if it's on a little dot on my phone and imagining, oh, yeah, they're here. Yeah, I bet. And I don't want to bother them by calling them because that annoys them. Right? But so it just, there's just something about, I care for them. I'm interested in them. They're on my heart. 
I, like, I want to know what's going on with them just because I love them and I, I miss them and I'm so used to knowing all the details of their lives. Let teenagers listen. Your parents care about you. That's why they spy and ask so many questions. It's not because they're trying to control you. They probably are, but, but it's because they need to. But more than that, they, they care about you. They care about you. But here's what the text says. God, God cares for you. Infinitely more than the best parent cares about their children. God takes an interest in you. He is concerned for you. You matter to him. His deepest anguish is your anguish. If you tried to count the number of times that God pulled out his iPhone and looked up your location... The scripture says if you tried to count the times, the number of times God thinks about you, it would outnumber the grains of sand on Little Gasparilla Island. Isn't that amazing? God is holy, he's sovereign, he's powerful, he's wise, he's everywhere, he's all-knowing, he's all of that. There's only one thing that the Bible says that he is rich in. He's rich in mercy. God is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And whatever withdrawals we make because of our sin, it only causes his fortune to increase, not decrease. And mercy in the Bible refers to, it, it, they, they, the ancient peoples used to describe the bowels of mercy. Because it was the part of the, the body where they felt like the, the deep, guttural feeling came from. It's, it's a feeling word. God has feelings. And so Dane, Dane Ortland he writes this, he says that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which God's love passes, but they're homes in which his love abides. This is in Gentle and Lily, which you should read it. It's amazing. He says, that God is rich in mercy means that the things about you that make you cringe the most make him hug the hardest. It means his love is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. He goes on in that book, he says, the Christian life is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is God's insistence on who he is. I care for you, he says. I care for you. I, care. I know you don't believe it. I care for you. He's, Peter's describing faith and repentance. Ortland is describing faith and repentance. God insists on you knowing he cares for you. And you got to let go. you got to let go your natural assumptions about what God's like and replace them with what he reveals himself to be like. That's the way you move forward in the spiritual life. Now, that might be a, really, a real struggle for you. It might be a real struggle for you. Well, you should know that it is not an abstract concept, mercy. Mercy is not just a doctrine, okay? This is the important part. Mercy is actually a person. The Apostle Paul described Jesus Christ as the embodiment of God's mercy. That's Titus 2, verses 11 and following. As we read through Luke's gospel, 
and we notice and observe the life of Jesus, when you read, you're seeing what rich in mercy looks like, how rich in mercy talks, how, how rich in mercy conducts itself towards sinners, how rich in mercy moves towards sinners. So affected was God by our sin and misery, his heart overflowed in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for our sins. Do you doubt God cares for you? Look at Jesus hanging on the cross. Do you see him? Beady beaten and bloody, crowned with the thorns that symbolize your curse? Do you hear him crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And at the same time, God, why have you forsaken me as his soul sinks down into hell to endure your wrath? Do you doubt that God cares for you? How could you? Do you doubt that his love will ultimately win, that Jesus who died upon the cross is alive, which means God's love is invincible, his love is undefeated. He cares for you. And you can take that statement without qualification. Yes, but. No, but. Yes. And then that puts you to the work of humility. And that's the last thing I want you to see here, verse 7. Because really the question at the center of this text, I think, is, is this. is um, What do you do with your anxieties? If you want to bring this down to the concrete of your life... What do, you do, what do you do when you feel anxious about a situation? What do you do? Think about your life. I mean, how do, how do you engage at that place? Do you put your resources to work to fix it? Is that your knee-jerk reaction? Oh, man, I got, I got stuff to do here. Is the solution your strength, or is it your wealth, or your connections? Because all of that, unfortunately, is pride. That's exalting yourself. It's that suffering-avoidant you know, self-exaltation of, oh, I'm going to get to work and figure this out all on my own. Now, the text suggests a different strategy. Look what it says, verse 7. It says, when you feel anxious, here's what you do. You cast your anxieties on him because you know he cares for you. That's how you humble yourself. You respond to the things that you're anxious about, not with more effort, but with prayer. You take your suffering to God because you know that he cares about you, and actually he's the one, and he's really the only one who can do anything about it to begin with. That's that's what we mean by humility when we talk about humility. Remember, humility exists on both the, the vertical and the horizontal, the Y and the X axis. So that will make you humble with other people too because anxiety, by the way, is where a lot of our pushiness comes from. Pushy people, controlling people, those scary people in your life, they're just afraid. They deal with their fear by controlling everything and everybody. We're all anxious. We're all anxious, more and more. Our technological hyperconnectivity is just making it worse. Our fluence is making it worse because it gives us, it allows us to live with the illusion that we are, in fact, in control. But Peter says, don't buy it, don't believe it. Instead, problem solve your life through prayer. You can push, you can plan, but it's better to start with prayer. And then you wait. Look there, until what Peter calls the proper time, verse 6, when God will exalt you. Now, I was curious about that word. It is, it is the word kairos, which if you're familiar with the Bible, there are two types of time. There's chronos, two Greek words that describe time. There's chronos, there's the time of clock and calendar, the day-to-day -day of life, and then there's kairos, and kairos is a different kind of time. It's special time. It's appointed time, God's time, the time of 
salvation. And so as creatures bound by time, we in our own strength can only do chronos. We can only do chronos. We can only make chronos happen. We cannot bring kairos. We cannot turn chronos into kairos. But chronos will eventually turn to kairos. But only when God does it. That's the lesson here. It says, verse 10, after you suffer for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you with his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The Bible, the Bible nowhere promises that you will not suffer, but here Peter says, if you do, don't worry, it won't last forever, just a little while, he says, and then God will raise you up. Just a little while. It's the language of res- resurrection there. Living in a fallen world, life is full of suffering and hard things. Suffering is a form of dying. It is following you know, it, it is going down into death, but following Jesus means taking up your cross and dying to yourself for God and for others. And so there's no escaping dying. If you're here and you're not a believer, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you live in a fallen world, you're going to experience a lot of dying until you actually experience dying. But if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean less dying, it actually means more dying because you're taking up your cross and you're following Jesus. So there's no escaping the dying we endure in life. But here's where Christianity offers good news. Christianity claims that because Jesus died and was raised, then if you're united to him in faith, then just as you go down with him into death, you will also come up with him out of death and resurrection. Not just at the end of your life, but for those who've put their faith in Jesus, every death leads to resurrection. God will come after a little while and he will exalt you if you humble yourself under his mighty hand and unburden yourself to him in prayer. If you take a self-emptying posture to whatever good thing that might be a hard thing he is doing, there's, there's a scripture that says God waits to be gracious to you. I, God waits to be God waits for you to start waiting for him. And then the chronos turns to kairos. Then death becomes resurrection. So what? What if God can bring about good things without us? It's just another way of saying this. What if grace really was true? It would lead to a whole different way of life, wouldn't it? But here's the thing. As I'm, I'm finishing, but let me say this. I can immediately anticipate an objection. Some of you might say, listen, pastor... It's been more than a little while, and I'm still waiting, and I'm losing hope. And here's what I would say to you. 1 Peter 5.10 is a promise, but it's also perspective. And the resurrection that you need might not come before the resurrection, but even if the suffering, the hard things, the sadness that you're enduring now, even if it lasts for a lifetime, a lifetime is still a blink of an eye in comparison with eternity. You are a soul that will last forever. And 70 hard years is just a little while when compared with a billion billion. And then you're just getting started. The Apostle Paul said our sufferings are light and momentary only, only when you compare them to what he called the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. In fact, he said in that passage that our suffering... Our sufferings are are actually the very thing that are preparing that eternal weight of glory for us. So here's the equation you live by. Suffering now is just a down payment, a deposit on glory then. And the glory will be this. The glory that will make every hard thing that we went through in this life feel like a momentary light thing. The glory that will make all the sad things come untrue will be to finally see all of the good that God indeed brought about. 
And the best part of all of that will be the stuff that he did without us. So the best, I, the best advice I can give you as your friend is, uh, is what Martin Luther said to his young protege, Philip Melanchthon, who, who uh, when it, the heat got really hot and he was really worried, Philip was freaking out because they were, the, they were coming after Martin Luther and himself because they were Protestant reformers and they wanted to kill him. And at one point, it's reported anyway, uh, Luther, got a little, you know, Luther got annoyed with people, if, you're not, if you don't know that. But Luther got annoyed with this young guy and he said, okay, he said, let Philip cease to rule the world. That's what I would say to you. Fill in your own. Let Drew cease to rule the world. That's humility. And it's the way we come to the Lord. As the, as the hymn writer said, I've, I've mentioned this one before. It's one of my favorites. But this old hymn that says, Though of myself I nothing am, I'm dear to God and to the Lamb. Though I have nothing, I confess all things in Jesus I possess. Amen. Pray with me, if you would, as we uh, finish our service this morning. So, Father, thank you for your gracious invitation for us to follow you in humility. It's scary because we know it means hard things and not necessarily the alleviation of those hard things. But, but the promise also comes to us that even though we walk through really hard things, and even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death, we can be sure because you're a God of grace, that you go with us, that you never leave us or forsake us, that in Jesus our sins have been dealt with. There is nothing now to condemn us. You promise to be an ever-present help to all those who believe in times of trouble. And so we can rest assured that you and your presence uh, remain with us even when everything else in our, our life seems to fall apart. And so would you help us with the right perspective to engage those harsh parts of our life and to not allow our pride to take over this suffering-avoidant self-exaltation and autonomy, but that we would graciously humble ourselves underneath your mighty hand, clothe ourselves with humility towards one another, and wait for you because we know you wait for our waiting. So here we are, Lord. We wait for you. Would you come and work for those, the poor in spirit, who say to you now, we're outmatched, we're overwhelmed, we're up against things we have no power and no authority to control or to make happen. So come and work for us, your people, the sheep of your pasture. We're sheep. <laughs> Great shepherd, we need you. Come and be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, there's truly no one like him. And so put your faith and your trust and your hope in the love that God has shown to you in Jesus Christ. Build your life on his love. And then go and serve him, amen? I mean, put your, build your life on his love, and you will find all of a sudden all of these resources inside of you available for you to live the kind of life that we've been describing here. But know this, as you go, whatever meets you when you go out, out that door, the one thing you can be sure of is that uh, God goes with you. He promises that, and that's what this benediction means. So receive again these words of benediction. Humble yourself under the promise of these words that the Lord promises to bless you and keep you. And so may he bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace as you go, both now and forevermore. God bless you. Go in his peace. Amen. <laughs>